what can we learn from our Lutheran forefathers on how to face the challenges of a culture openly hostile to Christianity? Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, has written a column for the latest Issues Etc. journal titled For Such a Time as This. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. You'll also find Pastor Will Whedon's article on the monthly Psalter, the free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. For about the last 30 years, there have been occasional bestsellers, Christian bestsellers, that deal in one form or another with spiritual warfare. Now, how biblical, I know they're entertaining, but how biblical have these books been, whether they tell the story of spiritual warfare or purport to teach Christians how to engage in spiritual warfare? What's the biblical definition? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about spiritual warfare, Dr. John Ferguson. He's pastor of Peace Lutheran Church in St. Louis and author of the book, The Sword and the Mask, Building an Anti-Fragile Approach to Spiritual Warfare. John, welcome. Thanks. I'm glad to be back again. Why is spiritual warfare such a popular topic, at least lately? Yeah, it kind of comes in waves, doesn't it? We had the big satanic panic back in the 80s and stuff. I think there's a couple of reasons for it right now. One is the generally speaking in our postmodern culture right now, I think people are skeptic of the modern, but they're also skeptic of organized religion. But they also, because they've rejected modernism, recognize that there are things out there that aren't readily explainable by science, doesn't have all the answers in terms of how they're, they're constructing things. And so they're looking at uh, other alternatives, but they've also rejected organized religion. So on one hand, there's a big thing out there of like spiritual but not religious, and we've we've heard that a lot. But that means that people are just looking at the supernatural in general. And then as Christians get into the conversation, of course, they're looking at it biblically. And so you run into then this concept of spiritual warfare coming back in as a as a talking point. The other thing is just that in our culture too, you know, witchcraft is growing so quickly as a part of that spiritual but not religious. And so I think people are encountering things more often now, and I think we will continue to do so, where a family member, friend, acquaintance or something is getting involved in things like that. And then, okay, how does the church respond to that kind of stuff? You know, with all the things in our culture right now, uh, like ghost adventure shows, ghost hunter shows, and all that stuff also then lends into this. Why has the Western church at least for several centuries until recently, largely ignored the subject of spiritual warfare. Yeah, you know, it really came up in the last kind of half century or so, and it continues to, in some ways, gain momentum now. Part of that is that in the Enlightenment period, I would say, all the way up through the early, you know, probably mid-20th century, uh, you have this idea that modernism eschews the idea of the supernatural. We're kind of ashamed of the idea that we would believe in things like demons and angels and that they would have any relevance for humanity or anything like that. But the other thing is through that, we're also fighting other battles. You have the moment of uh, whether or not the Bible is the word of God, for example, kind of a big battle for the church. And in that, then you have uh, the idea of, of fighting on whether or not the devil is real kind of takes a back burner to whether the Bible is God's word or not. On the other side of that, at the same time, you had kind of the battle for the Bible in the 
1950s and 60s especially and 70s. Uh, you also had this charismatic movement show up on the kind of the opposite side with the idea of these gifts of the Holy Spirit and then the charisma and the movement into immediate references from God and, and speaking in tongues and all this kind of stuff invading into the mainline denominations. And so they're on one hand, they're fighting whether or not the Bible is the word of God, then they're turning around and, and, and looking at whether or not experience is everything. And so you're fighting for the preeminence of the word of God on both ends. And at that point, you're kind of not really paying attention anymore to a lot of the other details that come up. And for both sides, right? Then you're trying to push away the devil on one hand where these uh, experiential charismatics are saying the devil's everywhere. You don't want to be associated with them. And on the other side, don't you don't necessarily want to be associated with being looked down upon for saying that the devils exist, you know, and you're trying to have this rational apologetic argument on the other side. And so you just kind of lose it in the middle there. So one of the things that I found remarkable in reading your book is, is how often spiritual warfare is dealt with as a subject. And we'll talk about the different approaches people have, but the term itself is left undefined. How can you write a book without defining the subject, at least initially? Why is it so often left undefined? Actually, I found that really fascinating too, as I was going along reading these books, and I've read at this point a lot of those books, how few of them actually ever bothered to define. And I think it's especially interesting because spiritual warfare as a term isn't biblical. There's nowhere in the Bible where it talks about here is our spiritual warfare, this is a spiritual warfare, or anything like that. So the idea that we kind of coined this term somewhere in the 20th century and then constantly refer to it but never define it, I found just to be a really curious artifact. And I think it's just because for a lot of the authors and people that are working in this on this idea, I they just move into assuming that everyone understands what we're talking about. If it's warfare, that means that people are at war. And if it's spiritual, that tells the kind of warfare it is. So instead of a physical war, we're just doing one same idea, but it's in the spiritual realm rather than in the physical realm. And just I think they assume everyone will just readily understand those terms, even though that's the wrong way to look at it completely. That's the assumption I think they just tacitly make and as they delve into the subject. You have basically categorized four and then, importantly, a fifth approach to spiritual warfare. And the first category is what you call the dismissive approach to spiritual warfare. What is it and who are its proponents? Sure. So, yeah, as I was reading these books and articles, you know, probably in the hundreds at that point, what I found was that I could start categorizing these based on their, essentially, the way they approach the Bible, that as they delved into spiritual warfare, how are they looking at Scripture in order to mine it for what they were trying to say? And so I ended up with those four different approaches and then a, a fifth new a kind of, well, new, quote unquote, but a, I would say maybe a recovery of an approach. But that first one, yeah, I talk about is dismissive. This is the most incorrect one. <laughs> this is this comes straight out of uh, kind of hard hardline historical critical thinking. It's that move into the understanding that Anything in the Bible that talks about the miraculous, that talks about anything related to concepts of supernatural, none of those things are real other than perhaps God himself. So anything else, uh, Rudolf Bultmann was famous for that, where he talked about, uh, I'm going to paraphrase the quote, but you can't look at the modern world and flip on the electric light and still believe in the idea of ghosts and demons and that kind of thing. So that approach just says all these are, are 
completely mythological and they're just from a primitive society. Uh, and so they just completely dismiss it. So it's a it's a their approach to spiritual warfare is a part of a larger dismissal of the supernatural generally. Yeah, that's correct. So they say there's no point in really talking about spiritual warfare because there's uh, spiritual as, as understood as supernatural creation or beings or whatever isn't even really a thing. The other approach or another approach is the social approach. How is that defined? So this feeds off of the dismissive approach. So I don't spend a lot of time on dismissive. There's not a lot to say on it, right? If you don't believe in any of that stuff, that's kind of the end of the conversation. But the the move into social takes the Bible and says, okay, well, we still have a higher critical and historical critical view of it. So we're going to go into it and and look at these passages and not really believe that this is actually talking about, for example, Jesus exercising demons. Like, it's not really demons. But there is a truth underneath here that the writers are trying to get at, but they're doing it in a way that's kind of in a fable so what we need to do is strip away the layers of symbolism and get down to the heart of the matter. And so when it comes to a large swath of that approach when it comes to spiritual warfare, and Walter Wink, who died a few years ago, he was probably the biggest proponent of this uh, in terms of notoriety. He makes the move that ultimately all of these accounts are about the idea that the church's job is to call out social injustice and social oppression. So what that means then for for Christians is the gospel is not really about saving salvation in Christ Jesus from your sins and atonement. It's about going out and rectifying abuses of power in the world. The domination systems of society, the churches call us to call them out that they can, by striking their conscience, turn them from being kind of a, quote, demonic with negative connotations on how they deal with the people under their power, but they would turn, quote, angelic by being beneficial for the people that are under their authority. And that becomes the crux of their understanding of it. What is the pneumatic approach? So then we move away from the people that are not really counting the Bible as being the Word of God into talking about people that do. So the pneumatic approach comes out of the idea that the Bible does talk about the supernatural and does talk about demons and does talk about angels, and we're going to take that and recognize it to be real. So the move there, though, is the idea that we take the supernatural texts of the Bible and take them at face value, but the way we do our hermeneutic is to kind of cherry-pick the Bible for references based on our experiences and then use our experiences as kind of primary and then take our Scripture and norm it that way. And so we, we begin to just pull pieces of Scripture out and construct for ourselves what we think is going on. And the result of that then is typically it's this way. The Christian is called to be a soldier for Jesus in order to take back the world from Satan. That somehow God legally in some way that's very nebulous can't come into the world and rule it so the devil's ruling it so we have to play like saboteurs and come in sneakily and take back the world for god so this is the kind of the umbrella under which rests what is it uh, it was really popular about five ten years ago kind of a geographical possession people would go and take back a city yeah, they they go and they would 
pray or whatever they would do some spiritual discipline yeah, they in order it, to, to, to like get the geography back from the devil. Yeah. Yeah. It's called strategic level spiritual warfare. Right. And that's the idea. So there's, there's kind of three levels. There's ground level warfare, which is me and uh, my fight with the devil in my own life. And then there's a cultic level, which is dealing with pagan worship and the influences of the devil and, and all that kind of stuff. And then there's this strategic level spiritual warfare, the idea that we are called to take back cities for God. We're called to take back these geographical territories for God, that God's gospel can't make inroads unless we fight for this territory spiritually against these larger demonic hierarchical powers. So it takes on this real kind of superhero bent. Frank Peretti's books, like This Present Darkness, are based on this idea. We'll get to your approach to this, but this really turns biblical spiritual warfare on its head because essentially they're saying the devil rules the world and not Jesus. That's correct. That's one of the big issues, obviously, as Lutherans we should have with it, is they they very much limit the reign of Christ and say that he kind of started the ball rolling but then it's up to us to actually have what he started have an effect in the world. So it puts humans at the center of it. If you read uh, the, the big proponent of this, who also passed away recently, is C. Peter Wagner, who was big known for the church growth movement and then became known for all of this stuff and strategic level spiritual warfare. And he really pushed this idea that for the Christian, one of his things that he talks about is you have to have no – no unconfessed sin in order to be a good soldier for God. And if you have a really anemic understanding of sin, then I suppose that might be possible. But uh, if you understand sin rightly, then he's already set the bar beyond anybody's ability to do anything. But that was, that was his viewpoint. And then from there, uh, you kind of cherry pick things out of the Bible in order to try to prove your point. And that's a, not a good hermeneutic to run by. Dr. John Ferguson is our guest. We're talking about spiritual warfare. There's a fourth approach called the bifurcated approach, and we'll explain what it is next. We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes. Dedicated customer service and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House. Listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House. cph.org. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org spiritual, and religious. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press is a family-run publisher of classical Christian education materials for homeschools and private schools. Every page of the Memoria Press curriculum leads students to a mastery of content, an understanding of the classical heritage of the Christian West, and an appreciation of truth, goodness, and beauty. 
If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. memoriapress.com. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're talking about spiritual warfare with Dr. John Ferguson. He's author of the book, The Sword and the Mask, Building an Anti-Fragile Approach to Spiritual Warfare. John, you said there's a fourth approach here, and you call it the bifurcated approach. What does that mean? So the bifurcated approach is probably the one that most Christians that are from like a traditional mainline denomination, this is probably what they're most familiar with. So basically what it is, we believe that the devil's real, and we recognize his existence, and we recognize God's rule. But the devil and the fallen powers, generally speaking, but especially the demonic, don't seem to have much relevance for my daily life. So I liken it to like when you watch Tom and Jerry or Bugs Bunny or something, and you have, they're about to do something bad to something innocent, and so you have this little angel on one shoulder and this little devil on the other shoulder. And they're like, now, Tom, you know, be nice. And then, no, go get him. And in that, then you have this temptation that you have to wrestle with. So you have that moment, like the devil's there just to poke you into temptation, or you have the occult, or you have kind of possession as an extreme case. But otherwise, eh, devil doesn't really matter. Not really interested. The fallen powers aren't really something I think about. Mostly I just go on with my life without considering these things, even though biblically we're told to be very, very careful all the time regarding these things and be very sober-minded about them. So we live in this dichotomy where we don't really see the supernatural interacting with the natural as being a daily occurrence or anything relevant to us. So it acknowledges the existence of the supernatural and of, of unseen powers, but it essentially says... They're there, but they don't impact me in any real way. Yeah, it's like an esoteric, interesting little bit of our theology, but doesn't really have any relevance. So let's get to the biblical definition of spiritual warfare and where you find it in Scripture. Your definition actually is brilliant, and part of its brilliance is its brevity. You don't do a lot of explaining stuff. What is the biblical definition? So the biblical definition, as far as I can get it, is spiritual warfare is the power of the fallen creation railing against the reign of Christ. And so then I have to define all my terms, right? Because obviously we need to do that if we're going to put a definition in. Where do you find this in Scripture first? Uh, all over the place, actually. So each of the sections as you go through builds through the biblical theology. One of the challenges with spiritual warfare, again, is as a word or a term, it's not actually in the Bible, right? So you, you don't have that. So what you have to do is step back and say, okay, when we're talking about the idea of the demonic and of the fallen powers in general, how do we understand that rightly and biblically? And so from there, you, you, you start walking through the understanding of those biblical texts regarding the reign of Christ, regarding the fallen powers of creation and what they're about and then where does humanity relate to that? And so in light of those things, you start understanding it in this term of this definition that the powers that are fallen in, within the created order are just railing against Christ's reign, pushing against it, trying to deny its reality or to at least ignore it. Let's talk about something that I think 
is not found in the other definitions or approaches that is found in yours. And that is the spiritual warfare. It doesn't just involve the demonic, that is Satan and his minions. You say fallen powers or the fallen powers of this world. What are those powers? Yeah, well, they're all three very familiar, biblically speaking, and we see this all over. It is the sinful nature of the self, the old Adam. It is the broken world that we live in, both nature and humanity in general. And then you have the demonic themselves. You have these three fallen powers of creation within the self, collectively, and and in, in the fact that the whole world fell when Adam and Eve fell, and then also then this this quote supernatural or holy supernatural, which is the fallen angels. All three are components of this, and they all three go together. And as I talk about in the book, toward the end of it, you can't really separate these out in terms of like, well, this or that or that other thing. Like you really have to take all three into account when you're talking about this issue. So it's a, the unholy trinity of the flesh, the world, and and, uh, and the devil. And yeah. the devil. And they're always acting in concert with one another. Always. Every day. All the time. What is the reign of Christ? So when we look at Christ, and so this is a part of you talking about it biblically, right? The question that spiritual warfare raises is how much of creation, of the created order, does Jesus reign over? And when we read the Bible, if you read it in its context and you take all of Paul's letters in their context and you take the Gospels in their context, take Revelation in its own context, what you find is that Jesus reigns over everything. All of the created order, heaven and earth, everything, because he's God, he reigns over it all. Absolutely. There is no contingency to his reign. The Bible doesn't speak in any way about Jesus sort of reigning. Rather, it talks about the degree to which he imposes that authority in its fullness, but not whether or not he has authority. And those are two very different things, and they often get confused. And that's where some of these guys kind of fall off and start making bad theology is in this move where they start acting or or speaking like Jesus isn't reigning over parts of the creation. And that's a failure on their part to understand the biblical theology there. Why do you use those words rail against? Yeah, so I I chose that as the verb here for a reason. And the reason is because the fallen powers are not God. We don't live in a dualism, even a limited dualism. Christ reigns. They can't change that. So the idea that they're railing against his reign, they don't like it. They're pushing against it. They're beating at it to try to pretend it doesn't exist, to try to minimize the exercising of it as much as they can within their own frame of reference, but they cannot change the reality of the reign of Christ. And so for all their work, they're going to end up not doing really anything to affect that reign, but they're sure going to yell and make a big scene about it anyway. And I take it that they do have, while Christ reigns, and all they can do is rebel and rail against Christ's rule, they can pile up a body count in the process of doing that. They're not going to defeat Christ, but they can take captive the minds of men and things like this. Oh, yeah. So the reign of Christ, where where we as Lutherans kind of distinguish ourselves from others, is we also recognize that he reigns within a certain means during this age. So we're in the last age right now, the age of the church. And the way Christ reigns is in, is with mercy, right? So he he reigns on one hand, curbing evil through the government, and he reigns on the other hand in this world through the church, 
where where through he brings the gospel and salvation and grace and mercy and connection to the promises and the hope that we have in what Jesus has done for us at the cross and in the empty tomb. So in that, then, what we find is since Jesus suffers to allow evil to continue as this time of mercy goes through the gospel, the fallen powers recognize that they have this moment to try to take advantage of God's mercy rather than succumbing to God's mercy and and going prostrate before God's grace to rebel against it, to take advantage of it, to destroy as much of what God loves as they can. So what I talk about in the book is that there's two different motivations between the world and the sinful nature on one hand and then the devil on the other. They have two different motivations for this, but they're all pushing against God's reign collectively. And God suffers that evil in this age as he goes about his way of having mercy through the church. Dr. John Ferguson is our guest. We're talking about spiritual warfare. We'll discuss Ephesians 6 next. Where doctrine is life. You're listening to Issues Etc. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're talking about spiritual warfare with Dr. John Ferguson. He's pastor of Peace Lutheran Church in St. Louis, and he's author of the book, The Sword and the Mask, Building an Anti-Fragile Approach to Spiritual Warfare. In about 15 minutes, Pastor Ted Geese joins us for a review of the TV series, The Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. John, I'm thinking about Ephesians 6, famous put on the whole armor of God passage, but even before that, the apostle begins by saying, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. It's almost as though he's saying, look, you are going to face these enemies, but it doesn't diminish Christ's reign or his rule. Is that the proper context for understanding spiritual warfare? Yeah, when you look at actually the whole letter of Ephesians to the Ephesians in this context, you find something really interesting. So in the first chapter, he seals us, like he talks about the Holy Spirit sealing us, right? That we are sealed in the Spirit we are God's children. And this starts getting us to the crux of what I'm proposing is a recovery of a right understanding of the concepts of spiritual warfare. So in it, what he's saying is, this is who you are. As a child of God, you are sealed in the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to talk about it in terms of your sinful nature. You can't do it yourself. It's a gift of God, right? And we get into chapter two and Lutherans cling to eight and nine, and we should cling to 10 also. But that move of you can't save yourself Christ has saved you out of love, brought you into his grace and mercy through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and now you are his. So this is how God sees you now. And this kind of gets to the crux of it, is understanding who we are in Christ and not losing track of that. Then he goes on to talk about the world and how the world does things one way, but now that you are God's child— you do things differently in the world. And then collectively, the church sees the world differently than the world sees itself. So he touches on these two things, the sinful nature in the world. And then when we get to chapter 6, verse 10 and 9, really, then he kind of tackles that last fallen power, the devil. So that's the context there. And what he's trying to remind us of is Christ is reigning over all this stuff 
already. This is all given to you already now. It's all yours now because you're God's child now. And so be in the strength of his might right now, not just in the world, but also against these things you can't see too. So let's talk about the implications of this proper understanding of spiritual warfare on pastoral care. So if we're looking at this in terms of these fallen forces railing against Christ's reign, then we have to also look at it. Okay, so if Christ is reigning and he's reigning through the church and he's reigning in me as his child on account of the Holy Spirit bringing me and keeping me in the faith, then that means that the the fallen forces are constantly railing against that identity in every Christian and in the church in general, corporately. So pastoral care in this view, as we approach it in this way, begins to take on a shape of helping equip people to remember who they are in the atonement of Jesus Christ and in his reign in their lives through his mercy and grace and his love for them and the forgiveness that should mark everything that we do. And so drawing people to recognize that the identity of, of a Christian in this life because of the fall and because we still have our sinful natures railing against Christ and then against what he's done in us is this constant pointing back to contrition and repentance so that we can be pointed to the cross and forgiveness. And it's a daily thing. And this is, so I'm just going to throw this in. This is why Luther talks about this in baptism. When he released the baptism in the small catechism and he says, the old Adam by daily contrition and repentance should be drowned, you know, in the waters of our baptism and the new man emerge. What he's talking about there is this idea that we remember who we are. When we wake up in the morning, who am I in God's eyes? Not in terms of the world, but in God's eyes, that I am God's child through the waters of my baptism. And so I should think that way and I should act that way and I should strive to live out the identity as God sees me, regardless of my circumstances in my day, because I'm a forgiven child of God. Struggling, yes, with sin all the time. And so my life today is marked with contrition and repentance and forgiveness. And that's that cycle I'll go through until I'm dead or Jesus comes back. But that's a mark of who I am in Christ, and I need to start thinking about my life that way and my relationships that way. And so as a pastor, helping shepherd people to see their life from that perspective and recognizing the richness of forgiveness and that this whole cycle of contrition, repentance, and forgiveness is actually a gift of God in our lives and is enriching for us and drives us back to God in a relationship with him. The one term here that we have not yet defined is there in the title of your book, and it does need some explanation. It might trip up some people. You use the word anti-fragile approach to spiritual warfare. Why did you choose that term? I chose that term because God not only nurtures us and keeps us, right, but he actually makes us cling to him even more as we go through this world. So the Bible has places, Isaiah 1 and, and other places where it talks about the idea of God doing kind of a refining fire where... Somehow we are clinging to things other than God, and then we get we get beat up in the world, and it causes us instead, as faithful people, to actually cling tighter to him on the end. And so we actually become stronger in faith through the adversity that the world gives us. So the way I, I often talk about this, we don't really have a word for it, and that's where antifragility comes. So this is the way I often, or I've heard it talked about, let's say you're going to put a package through the UPS or the post office, right? So you forget to put fragile on it to mark something fragile. On the other end, it's probably going to be broken, right? So it's a fragile thing. When it's put through the stress and disorder, it breaks. 
So normally we say the opposite of that is robust, where you put it through and it's resilient so that as it goes through the the shaking and the beatings that that the post office puts it through, on the other end, it comes out unscathed. It's the same as it was when it started. That's actually not the opposite of fragile. The opposite of fragile is things that gain from that disorder and chaos. So like you would put it through the rigors of the post office so that by the time it gets there, it actually is what it's supposed to be, right? It was, wasn't what it was supposed to be. And then by getting beat up, it actually becomes better. And that's what God actually ends up doing. He takes the, the problems and evils of this world. And as we live out this life as Christians, as we cling to him through the midst of our adversities, as we enact the sword and the mask, we find that in our lives, as God works through those things, we find that God actually causes our faith to be strengthened as we go forward. So Luther talked about this a little bit in terms of the Anfektungen, right? That we encounter the problems of the world and it drives us back to the word and it drives us back to prayer. And through that cycle of, of dealing with the problems and evils of the fallen creation and then being driven back to God because of it in faith, God actually causes us to become even more than we were as his children. And so we become what used to be fragile sinners God causes to become anti-fragile saints. So that's where that term comes from. How do Christian worship and the sacraments, how do they have a role in spiritual warfare? So God doesn't make us Christians in a vacuum. (laughs) You can't really be a, a solo Christian by choice, right? So what we find is that God gathers his people to receive his gifts. And not only because he has made us his body in Christ, that individually we are Christians, but we are a part of the church, the people of God, but also because he centers us around that word of his. He centers us around receiving from it the gifts that he intends to give us, and we get those through the divine service and the elements of it, and that mutual conversation and consolation of the brothers and sisters that that stems out of that as we leave those doors and recognize that we are not alone that God has brought us together to walk with one another in this life, to have compassion for one another in this life, to give us grace in this life. And because of that, this goes to the other side of my title. The sword is the sword of the spirit. And then you have the masks of God as Luther described it, where we are helping one another imperfectly in this life. We go about loving because God has first loved us and it pours forth out of us to love our neighbor. And we're compelled by the spirit to love our neighbor. But We can't do so perfectly. However, God is acting underneath behind the scenes in order to bring truly good things to bear, to happen. Not in a Pelagian way, but just in the idea that he can take what's broken and bring great good things out of it by his own impetus, even though I'm not aware of it at all. And so God does that. And so by putting us into life with one another, we are able to, first of all, bear that to one another in our times of struggle and in our times of celebration to celebrate with one another the gifts that God gives us, and then also to turn to the world with this recognition of compassion that it needs. In that sense, is that Ephesians 6 admonition by the apostle to put on the whole armor of God a call to worship, a call to gather around the word and the sacraments where those things are provided for us? Yeah. So, on one hand, it's it's individual in the sense of trying to remember who you are, that this, these, these, this armor is not something you're putting on in the sense of, I got to like muster the courage and go find it and dust it off or whatever. It's already yours. And Paul's reminding us, this is you. This is who you are. 
And then corporately, this is who we are. And so as we go and receive from that divine service, all of those things are handed to us throughout the service. A reminder of our salvation, a reminder that we're righteous in Christ, a reminder that we have faith that shields us from the devil. Uh, And the word of God there bringing to bear forgiveness and salvation for us through which the devil is then thwarted by that word. And then as we grow to own that word in our hearts and minds and lives, right, God uses that as like a toolbox then through which the spirit continues to act even as we go out those doors. What are the ethical, you've talked a little bit about vocation, but what are the ethical implications of spiritual warfare? This really gets to a lot of where kind of the rubber meets the road here. Because in spiritual warfare, when we're talking about masks of God and vocation and a lot of those things Luther talked about, again, like so many things with Luther, he wasn't very systematic, right? He had lots of great ideas that thread through all his stuff, but he never really sat down and goes, okay, here's the formal theology on that. But what we find in that masks of God concept and the offices that we have in the stations and the compelling that God gives us to love our neighbor, when we take that in terms of spiritual warfare, as his masks— As God is acting, he's either acting to have us love our Christian neighbor as we go back through and interact with our neighbor in compassion. What God's doing underneath that is bringing them his love. And what I mean by that is he's loving the Christian's neighbor more deeply into their redemption, or he's loving the neighbor toward the gift of redemption that doesn't yet have it. So one of the things that I I reference here in terms of ethics is Though I help my neighbor in all sorts of ways, on a larger level, God is acting out his love. And Western Christians get this understanding of God's love wrong a lot. God doesn't love in a generic way. He doesn't just love merely for accepting as love or just kindness or some other generic pithy surface emotions here. God's love is caught wholly up in redemption with an eternal view of the ramifications of loving your neighbor right now today. So there's no neutral act of love here. God is acting through you on some level to bring about work toward salvation in the lives of others. And it's subtle. It's behind the scenes. It's quiet. It's mostly done in the mundane things day to day. And so we start recognizing the treasure that those things are in our interactions with one another as we start coming about it from this angle. Finally, what's the comfort found in a scriptural understanding of spiritual warfare? For me, as I went through this, I found it profoundly comforting in this way that, as John says in his first letter, who are we that we should be called the children of God? But God calls us that, and so we are, right? The declarative work of God here, that he says you are, and therefore you are, and Clinging to that is so essential for the comfort of the people of God because we live in a world that is just messed up, right? The fall is real and the fall is tragic and it just is has infected everything. So when we're walking through this world, we can't help but run into hurt and suffering and pain and tragedy. Uh, when Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount says, you know, blessed are you when you hunger for thirst and righteousness. This is what he's talking about. The more we start clinging to God, the more we start letting go of the things of the world and holding on to him, the more we start recognizing the difference between how things ought to be under God and how things are in its brokenness. And it makes us hunger and thirst. And then as we interact with people or ourselves experience 
suffering, want, hunger, brokenness, persecution, destruction, to remember who we are in Christ and in the midst of that and what God is doing behind the scenes and that he is always acting to preserve his people and to walk with us and that no matter what the world looks like, that's not necessarily a connection to the reality that God has made in us, that we are God's children now and that salvation is ours and everything that comes with it today brings peace and brings comfort and brings hope in the midst of the tragedy that we face every day. Dr. John Ferguson is pastor of Peace Lutheran Church in St. Louis. He's author of the book, The Sword and the Mask, Building an Anti-Fragile Approach to Spiritual Warfare. You can purchase this book on the Talk on Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. John, thanks. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Pastor Ted Geese will be with us on the other side to review the TV series, The Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the Support Donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Have you thought about eternal life? When does it begin? What is eternal life? Well, your eternal life does not begin when your body, earthly body, fails and is laid into the grave. It begins, in fact, in the waters of holy baptism where you are tied to the death of Christ and in him you were raised. To learn more about this topic of eternal life, pick up your copy of the November issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Expert guests, expansive topics, extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. Is your child struggling at school? Are you thinking about homeschooling? Would you like help knowing what to teach and how to teach it? The Simply Classical Curriculum from Memoria Press provides an enriching, step-by-step classical Christian education for students who have autism, learning or behavioral difficulties, ADHD, and more. You'll find everything you need, including daily lesson plans to guide your way. Learn more at simplyclassical.com. Use LPR23 to save on your order. Simplyclassical.com. As we prepare for the Advent season this year, it's time for some contemplation. Your Christmas are from the 80s. They're made of styrofoam, the glitter has dropped off, and they're being held together with toothpicks. Don't celebrate another Christmas hearkening back to the age of glitter balls. See Ad Crusom's beautifully designed Christmonds together with our book describing how they fit into the church here. Visit adcrusom.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com.